Hello everyone. Um, today we're going to be diving into the chapters of 6 through 8 in 1 Corinthians, in which Paul, who is the great apostle to the Gentiles, which I think is most of us here listening, um, is answering questions that people have sent to him to answer. He's being very specific in replying to requests for information that people have given him. And our author's done a really good job of explaining um, the answers to questions that he's being posed about the courts and marriage and sexual relations and proper food choices and things like that. And because she's done such a good job of that, I'm going to kind of go off on a different direction and stick with one of the areas that I think is near and dear to my heart and I know near and dear to Jesus' heart, which is uh, justice for all. Um, Paul has given opinions and helped us discern the difference between what is cultural and what is practical on a cultural level and what is um, commanded and required of us. And um, one of the things that he gives us is by way of um, an informed opinion about our behavior is our memory verse for today, which is 1 Corinthians 8-9. And he says to us, be careful so that your freedom does not cause others with a weaker conscience to stumble. Jesus tells us we have freedom in Christ, bought by his sacrifice, but it's freedom that's meant to make others free, not further bind them with worry about whether it's right or wrong. So our freedom should have their salvation in mind as well as our own. But ultimately, the goal in Christ, of course, is that we be unified in our faith and that, not we're, that we're not spending a lot of time splitting hairs over one liberal interpretation or another conservative interpretation. Um, that's been happening since this was written in about 55 AD, and it's still happening now. So as I've said before, there's nothing new under the sun. But today I'm going to focus on that first issue, justice and the courts, because um, I, as a person who is looking to promote um, just behaviors for our congregation here at church as leadership in uh, creating disciples through service. Um, I've always focused on this area for my own life, and I'm just going to bring it to your attention. And the truth of the matter is, I don't have to go look too far to find um, the same kind of evidences of um, injustice that we're seeing in the time of this letter to the Corinthians. In fact, if you'll just follow along with me on these pictures, you'll see some things that you recognize, I'm quite sure like the uh, notion of frivolous lawsuits for the sake of entertainment. So um, on any given uh, daytime television show, we can see people enjoying watching other people go through painful and sometimes humiliating lawsuits um, by virtue of Judge Judy and the People's Court and Judge Marlene and Judge Matthias and some show I've never even seen called The Hot Bench. And of course, the, the original, perhaps in the best, Judge Wapner. So in our culture today, as well as in the Corinthian culture, people were taking other people to court and enjoying um, seeing one person squirm at the other person's behest. And um, what's worse than that is that people who had legitimate, uh, the legitimate ability to afford better lawyers and more manipulative lawyers were able to take advantage of people who were not able to afford such good representation. And also, nothing is new under the sun for us either. So um, let's hear what Paul has to say to the people in Galatians 5, 13 through 15. 
he says to them and to us, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Paul is reminding us then and in the book of Corinthians to keep some of our disputes in-house and to resolve them together. Matthew 18 gives us a good uh, way to do that, how to resolve disputes with a brother, and instead of taking them out into the public uh, courts. And the reason for that is we, we give uh, the word Christian a bad witness. And um, we can see that happening all over the world because people are uh, simultaneously looking at Christians as weak and silly and on the other side as evil and um, uh, discriminating. And neither of those is the character of Christ himself. But it isn't just in lawsuits that we like to judge people. And as I said a couple lectures ago, we judge people all the time. But for fun, we judge on television in so many elimination shows. The Great Bake Off, Who Wants to, um, The Voice, uh, American Idol. We have judges for everything. So today I'm going to ask you to be the judges of these, this game show called So You Think You're a Christian. So we have three judges, and I ask you to take the personality of one judge. You people on this side of the room can be this first judge, who is Mary the Self-Righteous. Mary sees things through behavior. She judges people by what they do. She reminds you of the Pharisees that Jesus so often talked about in Scripture and not with a, in a good way. Mary, Mary will judge the behaviors of people and decide whether they fall into the good or not good category, whether they're in or they're out, whether they're uh, hired or they're fired. A second group of you can take on the persona of Nigel, the new believer. A new believer has just enough information to sometimes be a danger to himself and others. He has a, a sense of what Christ has done for him and has received that information in his heart and his mind, but he has an underdeveloped uh, frame of discipleship. So some of what he sees he won't fully understand, and other things what he, that he sees he will, might make judgments about that are only half correct. You know, you were a new believer once, and so was I. And then the third group of you can um, stand in as the watching world. You are the world that is looking at us as either silly or mean, or somewhere in between, the religion of your grandmother that you cherish, the Christmas and Easter visits that you're used to, or somebody who is com a complete skeptic. And I'll let you decide which personality you take in that. And in this game, I'm going to read to you the descriptions of 13 um, people who are being judged for their capacity or their uh, proximity to being a Christian. And with the mind of Mary the Pharisee, the self-righteous Pharisee, or Nigel the New Believer, or the watching, skeptical, or super sweet world, I want you to decide if they are Christians. Listen as I run through these. First up, we have Dan. Dan has a church membership to the place he was baptized as an infant. He refrains from much alcohol. He occasionally smokes a cigar. He has four children and is married to a church secretary. He attends church some of the time. He gives donations to the church and other benevolent agencies when asked. He has several hobbies and doesn't like to talk much about religious matters. Is Dan a Christian? You tell me, Pharisees. Mary, the self-righteous group, you tell me, Nigel, the new believers, you tell me, the, the watching world. All right, next we have 
John. John is a newspaper columnist whose job it is to find stinging things to say about current issues. He senses he crosses the line of sarcasm in his column and may cause pain to people. He often refers to his Christian faith in his column, but usually tongue-in-cheek. He knows issues of faith make people squirm, so he uses seasonal references mainly. He has published an article recently about the dilemma that he knows will be less popular than political topics. The dilemma being whether he should mention his faith or not. He has asked Jesus for mercy and spiritual leaders for guidance. Is John a Christian? Next up we have Brenda. Brenda considers herself highly spiritual. She appreciates the social justice teachings of Jesus and calls him a great teacher. She attends a yoga class for wellness and meditates occasionally. Brenda loves to give to projects that propel goodness in the world. Brenda owns a Bible that had belonged to her grandmother and keeps it in a safe place. Brenda celebrates Christmas with a light-up nativity set in her yard. Is Brenda a Christian? Lisa. Lisa suffered a traumatic brain injury that affects her short-term memory. She is rehabilitated to the extent she can be and lives as an adult under the care of family members. Lisa attends church regularly, sings and prays with enthusiasm. She accepted Christ as a teen and was part of the youth movement before her accident. Lisa believes Jesus will one day come again and restore her wellness and she can't wait. Now Judge Tara. Tara grew up in a home with seven siblings and alcoholism. She was turned off by the religious practices of her parents that didn't match their actions. She is married and has two kids who've attended her neighbor's backyard VBS for a couple of summers. She recently has found a need for solace and to move forward in life. She has attended a 12-step program that spoke of a higher power. She has been considering church for the last months and is curious about God. She meets occasionally with her neighbor who talks about Jesus as if she knows him. Next up, Rashad. Rashad is a member of a professional soccer team that travels most every weekend. He has grown up with church being part of his culture, but he is not a member himself. Rashad knows Jesus loves him and is the only way to get to heaven. He was baptized when he was 11. He knows he should be more regular in Bible reading than he is. Rashad's mother has been praying for him for years and she appreciate and he appreciates that, but he doesn't pray much himself. Rashad has long hair and sleeve tattoos that make his mom's church people uncomfortable. Now we have Colleen. Colleen is the daughter of a pastor in her hometown. She literally grew up in the church building. The parsonage was attached by a hallway. Colleen went to church camp every summer and is a musician in the church band. She knows God is love and has always known that, doesn't everyone? She enjoys an active social life and sings in a nightclub at least once a month. Occasionally, she has more to drink than she should and has regretted it and the actions that followed. Colleen hides this life from her parents and the church and hopes she'll be forgiven by God. Charlotte. Charlotte has an addiction that plagues her, though she's been clean for three years. She is single and struggles with same-sex attraction. Charlotte is currently celibate and is making connections with a church support group. She is very willing to give her troubles away to Christ, but wonders if he can be enough. Charlotte is just about ready to say yes to that offer, but she wonders if a church would accept her. She knows her old friends will not understand this change in her. She isn't sure what a personal relationship with Jesus is, but it seems good, and she has said yes to it. Renee. 
Renee is a single mom who is a classroom aide three mornings a week and tends bar on weekends to earn money for her kids' expenses. She loves the Lord and sometimes shares his solution to folks at the bar that seem open to spiritual conversation. Several people have come to the Lord because of this. She considers herself gifted with evangelism. She is currently working an online Bible study and learning to pray for her ex-husband. Renee is finding a new peace in giving her ex to God and moving on in life on her own. An executive split in her church has left her without a church home at this time. Drew. Drew has never missed church. Sunday morning routines have kept him faithful. He gives in the offering plate and knows the liturgy like the back of his hand. He adheres to the rules of certain holy days and honors the church leadership. He is good at his job and doesn't lie or steal. He has been faithful to his wife, though he sometimes gets tempted by computer sites. In his free time, he is his daughter's softball coach. He is politically very conservative and is running for the school board and has signs for his favorite candidates and himself in his yard. Kenneth. Kenneth has dedicated his adult life to Christ and now works as a spiritual formation coach in a religious retreat center. He spent most days in prayer, fasting, and studying the Bible. He has decided to stay single in order to be available for a more Christ-centered life. He has a small bank account and takes 10% out of his salary through automatic withdrawal every week. He knows his lifestyle is not popular, so he doesn't have too many friendships outside of his community. And lastly, Elizabeth. Elizabeth is an activist for the Right to Life movement. She often posts on Facebook and other social media about the value of the unborn child and the sanctity of life at end stages as well. She has many friends who have strong church backgrounds. She is open to discussion about religion, but is confused about some of the language. She's a social worker for a not-for-profit homeless shelter, which is supported by local churches. Now, were you able to judge who was a Christian from this description? Perhaps it was hard for you. Perhaps you felt you didn't have enough information. Perhaps people fell in the gray zone. Unless you're a Pharisee, like Mary the self-righteous, you probably could de define black and white quite easily. How about the new believers? Were you confused by people who were sort of religious, but not exactly religious? And the watching world? Did you see what you thought you'd see? Were you able to tell from that what a Christian was? I considered naming this lecture Fifty Shades of Grey, <laughs> but I thought it might be a stumbling block to new believers because what we're seeing here is what Jesus is seeing, which is the insides, some of the insides of some of our hearts. Some of this represents people I know, and some of it is, frankly, people I am. Parts of me are in these characterizations. John, which I think was the second person I introduced to you, he's an actual newspaper man for the Chicago Tribune, an op-ed writer who uh, a few Sundays ago had an article very much like the one, the way I described him. With He's wrestling with how much faith to mention in an op-ed article on the front, the back side of the front page of the Chicago Tribune and what effect that would have on people. And he's wrestling with his own behavior in regard, regard to how to teach people and reach people and treat people. So you can see these are really true to life like scenarios. And luckily for you and me, there is a judge and it isn't Mary the self-righteous and it isn't Nigel the new believer and it isn't 
cat the watching world and it isn't you or it isn't me but his name is Jesus and many times in scriptures we hear that he will be the final judge in Acts 10:42 it says Jesus also ordered us meaning the disciples to preach to the people and to testify solemnly that this is the one who appoint who is appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead so here he himself identifies himself as the judge various other places as well and what Jesus judges and what we judge are two different things because Jesus knows everything about us the black the white and all the gray and he says it's what on what is on the inside that matters to him so last weekend i was on a beach in florida walking along and first part of the morning many shells had washed up on the beach some conch shells and i considered picking them up and um bringing them home and then i remembered a time when i had been on a beach um in boston many years ago when my husband and i were young and we had children at home and he'd gone on a business trip and we were going to pick up souvenirs off the beach for our kids and we did we picked up shells left and right and put them in a bag and put them in the trunk of our rental car only to find out 3 days later that there had been something alive in those shells that was clearly no longer alive and our rental car told the story while we rode with the windows down at 50 miles an hour back to the airport um we knew what we had done wrong so here's the deal like a conch shell you can't always tell from the outside what's alive or what's dead on the inside because the shell looks the same one way or the other but jesus knows what is alive and jesus knows what is valuable in matthew 23:27 jesus is criticizing the pharisees saying you are like whitewashed tombs with death on the inside and looking good on the outside just like my conch shell. In 1 Samuel 16 we see Samuel going out to find a replacement for the the uh, for King Saul. And he's sent to um into a family. And he looks at each of the men in the family thinking that they surely with their brawn and their bravery and their size and their presence must be the one from the family that God is directing him to. And it isn't until he comes to the youngest, smallest, weakest brother, David. that God says this is the one because men judge from the outside but I see the heart. We know this about our Lord Jesus and we can be thankful for it. We can be thankful that even if we're in a shade of gray, he knows our heart's intention and is longing to bring us into great alignment with him. In fact, that great alignment is the justification he gives us before God. So I've been long fascinated by the notion of justice. I mentioned that earlier, the idea that we can um go to the courtroom of the kingdom of God and stand before him and he sees in us a not guilty verdict. Even though we know that while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. But in that statement is the very reason we do have the capacity to stand before our God. I have this symbol of justice um on my desk and I look at it often it's right next to where I prepare many of these um Bible study lectures and certainly um do my lessons and it's a a brass a two-armed um balancing um um scale 
that I bought at a resale shop some time ago and it never did balance quite right. One side was always lower and the other side higher and I tried to put a new screw on the bottom and a nut on the top and you know it never really seemed to work and um, I kept it anyway even though it's pretty rickety because it reminded me that I cannot create my own justification before God. I am only justified by Jesus. On my own merit, with my own manipulation, I cannot stand before the God of the universe and say, I'm right with you. I have way too much gray to say that, and, and worse. But um, some of you have seen this illustration before, but I like it so much, I'm going to bother to show you again. I myself have... <laughs> My, my, I myself have looked at this illustration every day and I'm still not tired of it. And I thank God for the visual imagery that um, helps me to remember him. But on this scale that's out of whack, where one side is high and the other side is low, um, I, I was staring at that one day and at my desk I have this um, pull tab from my Bible cover. It's a leather Bible cover and it had this pull tab on it and at the end of the zipper was this cute little charm that said um, Jesus and it looks like a key. And um, I didn't throw it away because it says Jesus. You know, you can't just throw that sort of thing away. It, it's cute. I'd moved it around my desk many times. And then one day while I was looking at this out-of-justice scale, the scale which had not been righted, and I looked at that little charm that had fallen off my Bible cover, I thought, gee, what's the chances that if I just put this key on that out-of-whack scale that it writes itself, and it did perfectly. It righted itself, and, and this now reminds me that I indeed cannot provide my own justification, but it is only in Christ that I dare to come into his courtroom that I can say, because of Jesus, my key to eternal salvation, can I stand before God and be ready for the judgment? Ephesians 2.8 says, By grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. And John 1.12 says, Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And John 7.36-50 says, she, has, or, yes, she who has been forgiven much, loves much. I'm going to read that to you. It's actually not John, it's, uh, it's Luke. I don't know why I wrote John. It's Luke. Chapter 7, verse 36 through 50. I want you to listen. Now one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. So he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And when a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume. And as she stood behind him at his feet, wiping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair and kissed them and poured perfume on them. And when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. And Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two men owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he canceled the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose it's the one who had the bigger debt canceled. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, 
but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much, but he who has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, Your sins are forgiven. And then the other guests began to say to themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And Jesus said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Jesus started the process, and Jesus finishes the process. What's so fascinating to me about this is that, yes, indeed, the world judged this woman. And yes, indeed, Jesus judged this woman. And he judged her as safe. Simon was thinking about the, the way he would classify this woman. And Jesus answered his thoughts. Jesus sees on the inside when men only see on the outside. Jesus has a lot to say about justice and about fairness and about treating people who are low in a way that makes them high. He says many times that we're blessed because we're poor. And I said about a few years ago to decide whether, to find out whether in Scripture Jesus really had a preferential love for the poor because I thought, surely that can't be so. But if you just went on amount of times mentioned and attention given to people who were on the edges or on the fringe or below the poverty level, you would definitely have to uh, surmise that Jesus did have a, a, a dear, sweet, preferential treatment for the poor. In the Old Testament, we see much, to, much said about the notion of justice. 200 times the word mishpat is used, and it is the word we translate justice, as in this passage, Micah 6.8. And what does the Lord require of you? To act just, justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. That word justly or injustice is mishpat. And as many times as you see it, it's, it's giving us the notion as that we are to treat people with equitability, without regard to their color or class or gender in this case, as you see in the sinful woman. We are to treat them with the same opportunities for rightness, no matter where they are in society. The notion of mercy is so often said as well. The word hesed or chesed. There's about 101 references in the Old Testament and 56 more in the New Testament. And the word mercy is a restraint from punishment or compassion given where it might otherwise not be earned. And that references goes way back into um, the Ark of the Covenant, which held the Ten Commandments. And the Ark of the Covenant was uh, made to order, and on the top there were two cherubim, two uh, sets of angels, one on either end, and those wings sort of uh, framed out a space in the middle of the top of the, of the Ark of the Covenant, and that space was called the Mercy Seat. And it was at that place between the angels' wings on the top of the Ark of the Covenant that held the Ten Commandments that Jews understood that the holiness of God rested. And once a year, the high priest would go in and sprinkle the blood of a perfect sacrifice, a pure and perfect sacrifice on that very spot. And in that action, mercy was given to those whose sins were being presented there. Romans 3.23 references it in a different way. 
saying, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. The perfect blood of Jesus is the mercy for us. And from that Micah verse that we read earlier, what does the Lord require? Act justly, love mercy, walk humbly. We don't have to look very far to see a humble example in our Lord. Paul's letter to the Philippians says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count each other more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus. If you were to read further, you would see that he's saying, Christ, who could have taken a high seat, took a low seat for our benefit, being made himself humbled even unto the cross. God asks us to love justly, to show mercy, and to walk humbly with him and one another. And many times in the Old Testament, we see that the Lord is asking us to give that sort of treatment particularly to the poor and vulnerable. In fact, one author calls this set of people, the widow, the orphan, the immigrant, and the poor, the quartet of the vulnerable. It is listed in this reference, Zechariah 7, 10 through 11. This is what the Lord Almighty said, administer true justice, show mercy and compassion to one another, do not oppress, here it comes, the widow, the fatherless, the foreigner, or the poor. Leviticus 24, 22 says the same thing. Deuteronomy 10, 17 through 19, also Deuteronomy 27, verse 19. Job 29, verses 12 through 17. Job chapter 13, verses 13 through 28. Psalm 146, verses 7 through 9, Isaiah 58, 58 verses 6 through 7, Jeremiah 23, 3, Jeremiah 9, 23 to 24, and further. That quartet of the vulnerable, the widow, the fatherless, or the orphan, the immigrant, or the alien, or and the poor. These widow, orphan, immigrant, poor, the quartet of the vulnerable, require a greater effort in justice because they sit in a place where it is not likely to be given by society. And so the Lord tells us to do what he did. Tim Keller in his book, Generous Justice, which I highly recommend on this topic, it's an easy read, it's a powerful read. It says, he says, any neglect shown to the needs of the members of this quartet is not called merely a lack of mercy, but a violation of justice. And further, he says, God loves and defends those with the least economic and social power. So should we. I agree with Tim Keller because it agrees with Jesus Christ, who, when asked, who should we treat like a neighbor and what, were, what constituted a neighbor, in Luke 10, where it is revealed that the one who showed mercy is the one truly the neighbor. And he tells the one who asked the question, and that's you and me, to go and do likewise. And so I say to us ladies, lest we be judged by the outside 
without the mercy of Christ or the inside without the mercy of Christ. We would have nowhere to go. So in his form of justice, with his love of mercy, and in the humility that he exemplifies, let us go and do likewise. I'm going to pray. Heavenly Father, you know our hearts, and you know the way we strive um, to get right with you, and sometimes we do it by making sure we're not as bad as the other guy in our mind. And so, Lord, strike from us the inclination to judge on things that are, our, that are not ours to judge. And give us, Lord, hearts of compassion and mercy and, and, and energy toward compensating with true justice in your name and for your glory. Amen.